Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Noel, standing in for Matt with that line, because whenever Matt's not here, Ben and, I, ben and I always look at each other for a few minutes and realize that we're not quite sure how to start the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, never fear, Matt is off on a very special secret project that we cannot wait to tell you about. We will have to tell you sometime soon, so look forward to that. No spoilers. In the meantime, they call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, the personal digital assistant decade yeah yeah. pda but most importantly you are you you are here and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know we're we're pretty excited about today's episode what did pda stand for when it was like a palm pilot was it personal digital assistant uh yes i believe so so. or was it okay so there was public display of affection well there's that but, but they used to call like blackberries pdas Mm-hmm. Back before the advent of the iPhone and the more tablet-like 
device. Personal digital assistant. That's yeah. what it has to be. Isn't that funny, though? Because mm-hmm. that's kind of become a new thing because today we're talking about the kinds of personal digital assistants that you can talk to and can potentially talk back. Yeah, so let's look at some of the context. It's a, it's a very common trope in science fiction. Robots impersonating human beings with increasing levels of fidelity. And we see it in pop culture all the time. In some stories, like in every episode of The Terminator, every everything related to the Terminator franchise, machine consciousness tries to mimic humanity exclusively as a means of waging war. And in other places or other series such as The Matrix, uh, artificial intelligence or AI attempts to surround us meatbags with an impersonation of reality complete with individual machine minds that can pass for humans. And then in other cases, humans work together to build technologies that can impersonate other human beings in any number of ways. Yeah, sometimes for sexy times reasons. Sure. Sometimes for just companionship. Mm. And we've seen that go awry. I mean, (laughs) the Terminator, I think the whole point of that series was that humans created Skynet or whatever for Mm. their own – to serve their own purposes. And then Skynet said – what up, humans? We're done with you. We're mm-hmm. going to do our own thing or like in Westworld. Mm-hmm. And this goes, like you said, in any number of ways from increasingly lifelike androids to entities that exist purely in the digital sphere, able to hold genuine seeming conversations and functioning at or above what we would consider the average level of human intelligence As history has proven, science fiction is often prescient, and it's not uncommon for authors to spin fantastic tales only for those tales to move years, decades later from the realm of science fiction to the world of science fact. And the quest for this human-like technology in real life is no different. Yeah, I mean, I actually saw a YouTube video, a bunch of clips of of times that science fiction films have predicted technology that's Mm -hmm. totally a thing right now. Like um, Star Trek, for example, there's little communicators. They're basically Mm -hmm. iPhones. And you remember that scene in uh, Total Recall where they're walking through a full body scanner at the airport and you see like their skeletons and you can see the weapons hiding and stuff. That's pretty much what we do now at the airport. We got to put our hands over our heads and stand in those full body scanners where hopefully they just draw a little cartoon of us with the naughty bits uh, scrubbed out, but in theory, they can see everything. So too is AI and Mm -hmm. uh, the kinds of things we're talking about today. Yeah, and the concept of what we call artificial intelligence. Long-time listeners, you may recall, as we use this phrase, you may recall that some former guests of ours have objected to the term artificial intelligence with a very good question. What makes it artificial? What makes it – if we're talking about consciousness, what makes it any less of a consciousness than our own, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we think that's a good – we think that's a very good and valid point. Uh, We tend to agree with it, but for the sake of brevity, we're just going to go with AI. As a non-pejorative thing, it's just easier to say it that way. The concept of AI has surprisingly old roots in our culture, especially if we consider those ancient tales of non-human entities impersonating human beings, the, the fairy stories of changelings switched out at birth or, or gods changing shape to breed with animals or people or shapeshifters. In the 20th century, the concept of this artificial, inorganic thinking life form was popularized just like the point we made with science fiction, through culture and fiction. Like if you think of one of the earliest artificial intelligences that blew up in the Western world, it's the Tin Man. 
in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I never thought of him like that, but I guess it's true. It's a good stand-in for that because even the heart that he gets at the mm-hmm. end, spoiler alert for <laughs> The Wizard of Oz, sure. is like a clockwork heart. You know, mm-hmm. It's like something to add to his uh, machinations. It's not actually a physical heart. Mm-hmm. So he's absolutely meant to be like an automaton, which is – kind of the earliest form of robotics that go back to ancient times even where mm-hmm. you have these incredibly intricate creations that move through a series of gears and pulleys and what have you but aren't necessarily imbued with any kind of like ability to make choices but there are some that can even like play games i think there's one yeah. that's like a, a writer the mechanical turk that's right that's one yeah. of the yeah yeah and they were lauded for their ability to appear to do human-esque things right but people generally did not think they had a soul, for That's instance. Right. And it kind of goes back to – you were mentioning we'd had some folks say – you had to take issue with the term of artificial intelligence. We've also had some folks write in taking issue with the term – the idea of machine learning because mm-hmm. you know, it is a matter of we're still – at a place where we have to program machines to do what we want. We certainly have, have yet to fully experience this like idea of a singularity where the machine takes what we've imbued it with and mm. develops its ability to go outside of that or like make decisions outside of the parameters that we've right. programmed. Very rarely have we seen that. And when we do see it, it typically gets shut down. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, metacognition, right? So thinking about thinking, rather. So by the 1950s, scientists and mathematicians and philosophers were familiar with this concept of quote-unquote artificial intelligence, and our species began to cognitively migrate from this world of fantasy toward a world increasingly grounded in fact. And we can we can hit some of the high points of artificial intelligence here. In 1950, the famous codebreaker, Alan Turing made one of the most significant early steps in real-life AI when he and some of his colleagues created what we now commonly call the Turing test. It's named after him, of course. He wrote this paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence that laid the groundwork both for the means of constructing AI and for the ways in which we could measure the intelligence of that AI or our success building it, which might kind of be two different things. And Sadly, well, amazingly and sadly, this line of thought was ahead of the curve. Turing could not get right to work building these human-like minds or more specifically, he couldn't get to work building minds that could fool humans into thinking they were also human minds because the technology at the time had hard limits. Like to the point you make, Noel, about the mechanical Turk – Up until 1949 or so, computers couldn't really store commands. We can say commands or decisions here. They could only execute them. And this meant that the computers we could build at that time were unable to satisfy a key prerequisite of intelligence. They couldn't remember past events, past information, and therefore they could not use this memory to inform present commands or decisions. Mm -hmm. And in this way, computers began at that tabula rasa state, that blank slate state that so many mystics, spiritualists, and philosophers spend their lives attempting to attain. I think that's fascinating. Computers, like people who practice hardcore meditation, existed mentally only in the present. Yeah, and we'll get back to that concept in a little Mm -hmm. bit in terms of um, some of the newer computers Mm -hmm. and how they are able to – quote-unquote, figure things out. Mm -hmm. Some 
better than others. But let's just go back to the 50s for a second when computers were insanely expensive. I think this is no secret. They ran you, – you would lease one. You couldn't even own it. And that wasn't a thing for about 200K a month, which I believe, Ben, in today's standards, that would be about $2 million for one month of computer use. Yeah, in 2018 dollars. That's a lot of Netflix subscriptions, right. my friend. Um, and only, of course, the most prestigious universities and huge technology corporations could even, you know, uh, afford the cost of entry. Um, So for Turing and his ilk, um, to actually be able to succeed in building something resembling anywhere close to artificial intelligence, they would have to be part of some network of high-profile, very wealthy and influential Funders of research, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that would that they would be able to receive just a an absolute boatload of money from to get this kind of work done. And imagine, you know, that's a hard sell. It seems really interesting now, mm-hmm. but back knowing then, what we know, yeah, but yeah, but back then it was literally walking up to people and saying, "Hey, we're good at math, and do you remember the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz? We sort of want to make that." Can we have all of the money? So that's that's tough, but they soldiered on. In 1955, another groundbreaking event occurred. There was the premiere of a program called The Logic Theorist. It was supposed to mimic the problem-solving skills of a human being, and it was funded by one of our favorite shady boogeymen, the Research and Development Corporation, known today as RAND. The RAND Corporation. That sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie in and of itself. And it's still around um, Mm -hmm. doing pretty interesting and secretive work because I believe they ended up having a a relationship with the the U.S. government big time. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. This logic theorist is considered by many people to be the first – technically the first artificial intelligence program. And there was a big conference in 1956 hosted by John McCarthy and a guy named Marvin Minsky. And in this conference, they presented the logic theorist as a proof of concept. The conference is called the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence. And you know, Noel, I, I thought of you with this because I know how, how we both love acronyms. Well, I feel like in this one the D would be silent, so I'm just going to call it SIRPI. That's great. That sounds better. Because the D, you know, you, you can't really do a DS sound. SIRPI. The D is weird. It's not, not going to fly. So the conference itself fell short of the original, very ambitious aims of the organizers. They wanted to bring together the world's best and brightest subject matter experts and, by God, make an artificial mind. Yeah, just in a week of a weekend. <laughs> right, right. They said it took God seven days. Let's uh, – what do you say? We could do it in four, uh-huh. something like that. Mm-hmm. But the problem was pretty much everybody disagreed on how exactly you would make a human-like intelligence. And at this point, they're still thinking in terms of – artificial intelligence being like humans, which is a huge assumption. But they unanimously agreed for the very first time on a single crucial point that it was possible to make AI. And this set the stage for the next two decades of research. So from 1957 to 1974, artificial intelligence interest in it or research in it really flourished. Computers, they could stick, you know, they were uh, improving by leaps and bounds. They could store more information, which is crucial. And of course, they became faster and cheaper and more accessible. Um, machine learning algorithms also began to improve and people got better at knowing which algorithm to use for their particular purposes, which mm-hmm. was also important because it wasn't, you know, th- there was sort of an established um uh, 
language of algorithms that people could pick and choose from to suit their particular problems. Uh, early successes like the general problem solver. Mm-hmm. Um, ben, tell me a little bit more about the general problem solver. It does what it says on the tin. Mm-hmm. You could give it a variety of problems. Okay. And generally speaking, it would attempt to solve them. Not necessarily going to give you the most creative solution, but no. uh, yeah. And again, that's that's like an early days thing. So at the time, it was very impressive. But, of course, it was just the beginning. And, I, you know, you had another example, I think, of an AI application in that time. Yeah, this is when Alexa was first invented. Oh, yes, yes. No, I'm kidding. It's called Eliza. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But this is like a a spoken language interpreter, which Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wonder if Alexa is a a nod to Eliza. What do you think, Ben? That would be pretty cool. Only a couple letters off. It was a spoken language interpreter um, that helped convince the government to really, okay, this is something that we're into. And this is really important for our story today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it convinced – the government, specifically DARPA here in the United States, to start funding artificial intelligence. DARPA, as you know, if you are a longtime listener of this show, DARPA is the resident mad science department of the United States government. And it stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They're the ones who do all the X-Files level or, or fringe level stuff you hear about in the news or often. It's it's going to be – they're a forefront of it and then there's also stuff like Matt's favorite public-private partnership, Skunk Works. It's just a good name. I mean mm-hmm. I, if you can like it for nothing other than that. But they do all the secret Air Force projects mm-hmm. and you know spy planes and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. It's the kind of technology you think about that is probably years ahead of anything we've seen out there in the world today. And it's mistaken for UFOs, right? Right. In uh, this made people very gassed, very optimistic, because that's another very human thing that uh, we haven't quite learned how to program, optimism. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1970, Marvin Minsky, that guy who co-hosted this conference, he told Life magazine, from three to eight years, we will have a machine with the general intelligence of an average human being. He was wrong. But to your point about suppressed technology, Noel, who is wrong so far as we know. <laughs> it's interesting though too, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, yeah. but with everything that's going on with big f- public-facing companies like Google and Amazon and Apple and stuff, you start to get a sense that maybe the secret government stuff isn't quite as far ahead as it once was. Right. I mean that's just my opinion. I don't know. What, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a good opinion. It's something we want to hear from you about. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, because it's proven that in terms of physical hardware, material of war, mm-hmm. um, weapons and aviation and stuff, it is proven that the U.S. and most other governments want to keep that stuff under wraps. Right? Absolutely. I guess what I'm saying is when you're when you're looking at a company that's mm-hmm. trying to sell you something and you see how far they advance with each update every year, right. you kind of get a sense that maybe this is about where they're actually at. That's, that's the point. So I bring up the aviation stuff and uh, the weapons of war stuff to contrast it here because what what we're seeing also is that the governments of the world <laughs> – this is true. The governments of the world usually can't pay the best and brightest as much as the private entities can. Mm-hmm. So they're grabbing some of the best workers unless those people are severely ideological and then 
they're making most of the progress, which they would later sell to a government. So I think maybe there is a little more transparency. I think so, which is a which yeah. is an interestingly positive thing. But let's let's let's, let's get sure. there. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, keep, let's keep let's keep humming right along. So the quest for human-like artificial intelligence soldiered on, but it still had tremendous obstacles. Although computers could now store information, they couldn't store enough of it, and they could not process it at a fast enough pace. So funding dwindled until the 80s, and that's when AI experienced a renaissance, which we'll get to after a word from our sponsor. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans... Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health, but by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human-moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. So in the 1980s, uh, new tools and methods 
gave AI, the field of AI, a that renaissance that, that Ben mentioned, that kick in the digital pant. And a guy named John Hopfield and um, another fellow named David Rommelhart popularized this concept of deep learning, which is a technique that allowed computers to learn using experiences, mm-hmm. using um, l- paying attention to surroundings, for example – the, the idea of the fact that our phones are serving us ads because we're talking about stuff and it's taking mm-hmm. that information in and using it to do something and learning our, uh, our habits, right? And mm-hmm. this is a really important part of things like these personal digital assistants that we talked about at the top of the show, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the brain here too, or I guess in a parallel approach, a guy named Edward Fiegenbaum introduced expert systems that mimicked the decision-making process of a human expert. So what happens is the program will ask an expert in the field, like it would ask super producer Paul or Richard Feynman a question about production or physics, and then they would say, how do you respond in this given situation? And it could res- and it would take this for every situation it could soak up, and then non-experts could later receive advice from that program about that information. It sounds basic now. It sounds like how a search engine can know with increasingly accurate levels of fidelity what question you mean to ask when you ask a question. Remember when Google used to be super passive aggressive yeah. and say, did you mean? Well, now it just fills it in for you with yeah. the Google Instant thing. And the reason for that is that it has access to every entry that anyone has ever put into Google. Mm-hmm. And so it combines all that information and makes the, the best guess as to what it thinks you're probably searching for based on what everyone else that has started searching for that kind of thing has also done, which is that mm-hmm. same deep learning stuff that is coming into play. Which and makes predictive text so funny. It can yeah. be. Uh, I guess it depends on this, the platform you're on. And we'll get yeah. into that a little bit too sure. because sometimes it can be just really boneheaded. And mm-hmm. like, I'm like, haven't you figured this out yet, Siri? Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> he hasn't. Um, but this was all really put to the test in the 90s and 2000s mm-hmm. when we really hit some big landmark moments, some high watermark moments in artificial intelligence. Like with uh, with Gary Kasparov, who I know that you are fascinated with, although he is a problematic figure at times. Yeah, yeah. Raging anti-Semitism aside, yeah, chess grandmasters, the human ones at least, right, are – um, immensely, even fractally compelling because there's always some other layer to their personality and you have to wonder about the purported correlation between mental instability and high thresholds of intelligence. Sure. Uh, because, that, well, that's a story for another day. We should do you know that what? episode. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it might get a little close to home for us, but we can do it. So, yeah, as you're seeing, he was defeated by Deep Blue, built by IBM, a computer just built to play chess. This was a John Henry moment for the human race. And then a scientist named Cynthia Brazel created Kismet, a program of recognizing and displaying emotion. Now, for all our techno-futurist philosophers in the crowd, does Kismet Recognizing and displaying emotion automatically mean that Kismet experiences emotion? Story for another day, but these uh, person versus program one-on-one matches didn't stop with the game of chess. There was also Jeopardy, right? And uh, then there was one other one that had 
tremendous implications for the world of programming. Yeah, and that was much more recently with Google's AlphaGo. Um, that's Go as in the ancient Chinese uh, strategy game of Go. And it successfully defeated a Go champion, Kaiji. And Go is, is a notoriously complex mm-hmm. game. Uh, very difficult to predict and, and always have to be many, many moves ahead of your opponent. So that's pretty cool. That's almost a step further. Wouldn't you say, Ben, that Go would be te- more challenging for a computer to beat a human opponent than chess even? Like, yes. This is like a, an adv- a real serious leap forward. I would absolutely agree. And a lot of people were even more skeptical watching that game. People understood Go. We can also go out there and say, Paul, I don't know if you are familiar with this, but are you are you a Go enthusiast? Do you play this game? No, not really. Uh, Noel? I've never played it. I remember it uh, from the movie Pi. Remember Pi? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the one, one of Darren Aronofsky's first movies, which people kind of crap on, but I, I enjoyed it a lot when I was young anyway. But that movie is about a um, kind of a mad computer scientist who realizes that, that the Kabbalah uh, contains some kind of code involving the number for pi and gets goes down a crazy rabbit hole of insanity and paranoia. But Go is, is a recurring uh, game in that uh, movie, implying that it's all about high level, very, very high level thinking. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's excellent. You know, Pi is a fantastic but jarring film, you know. And so we see a common trend in these, again, we'll call them John Henry moments. And every, people generally know the story of John Henry, right, Noel? You think they do? I know he was a steel-driving man, but right. uh, give me some more. Well, John Henry, for anyone who is outside of the U.S., and I don't think we we know for sure how common this story is in the States anymore. He was in folklore. He was an uh, African-American steel-driving man, as Noel said. That's absolutely true. And his job was to hammer a steel drill into rock to make holes for explosives, right? And they would blast rock constructing a railroad tunnel. And in the legend, he was pitted against a newfangled steam-powered hammer. It was a man-against-machine race. And the historical aspect of whether this did or didn't happen is people go back and forth on it. But what we're experiencing now with AI is a series of increasingly high-stakes John Henry moments. Uh, Kiji, you said, Gary Kasparov. Uh, was it was it Ken Jennings who played Deep Blue? Yeah. It was our yeah. own buddy, our Ken own, Jennings. Our uh, own colleague, Ken Jennings of, uh, of uh, Omnibus fame mm-hmm. and then other things. Yeah, he does. He, he, does won, he won a bunch of Jeopardy, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In addition to, you know, his big tent item, which is hanging hanging out with us at How Stuff Works, right? Uh, so now we are on the cusp of a world that is both brave, to quote Alex No, it was Hus- Watson. Watson oh, is, 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 is Watson who, is who defeated Ken. I said Deep Blue, yes. and that's the chess that's one. That's the chess one. Yes. Watson was the quiz, the quiz bot. Also by IBM, though, right? That's correct. Okay, yes. So Ken Jennings versus Watson, Kasparov versus Deep Blue. And now we are on the cusp of a new world that is both brave, to quote Aldous Huxley, and strange. 
the average citizen in a developed country interacts with some form of artificial intelligence on an increasingly frequent basis, even if it's indirect. I mean, think about it. When is the last time you called a large company and didn't first go through an automated line, a rough impersonation of a conversation with a computer? I just always start mashing zero right away just Me to too. get past the because I don't because they it's so annoying because it's like if I thought that a that a computer simulation could help me solve the problem, I probably would have just done this online. Right. The fact that I'm calling the company in the first place, not to derail it with my sure. my get off my lawn moment. No, please do. Seriously, it's like they're never that helpful. You always have to repeat yourself over and over again, and you usually do not get the result you're looking for, um, which could change with uh, some of the new technology we're talking about today, which I think we can get into right now. Possibly. Maybe. Maybe it'll change because one of the big tasks for artificial intelligence right now, what what we use these applications for now is big data. We have built so many ways to scoop up information that our poor old primate brains, which are built for foraging and living in small bands in forests, cannot analyze and process all this stuff ourselves. So we built machines and codes. In this case, codes could just be standing for lines of thought to decipher all this data for us. And the application of artificial intelligence in this regard has already done amazing things in industries like technology, banking, marketing, entertainment. Well, it's automation of like sweeping through giant sets of data so that humans don't have to do it and using particular – what's the word? Algorithms I guess is one way of putting it or just rules saying look for this thing in this set of data, parse out this file, if then, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been the primary use of that up to this point in all of those things you said. So um, what's next? Right, right because right now – it doesn't matter if whether the algorithms improve much. It doesn't matter whether there is a sea change. The basic concept is there and this massive computing approach, this vacuum cleaner approach, for instance, that the NSA uses just allows artificial intelligence to learn through brute force. In the future, we're going to see more variation in AI. We'll see autonomous vehicles. We'll see predictive ordering services, which I know – most of us will hate and soon it will seem strange not to have some sort of artificial intelligence existing in some aspect of your everyday life. But today's question and a spooky one is how close to human can these programs actually get? And I think we'll get to that um, after just one more quick little sponsor break. Join Metro. They help you stay ahead of the game with nada, yada, yada. That means no contracts, no credit checks, and no surprises. Outsmarting yada, yada means, uh, you know, taxis and stuff. Shady subscriptions. Did you guys ever order something online and you thought it was just like a one-time purchase, but then you found yourself subscribed? Yeah, I had to call and stop payment on something because I had subscribed to it through Apple Pay. And even though I had like put a new card on there, it still was uh, tied to whatever card was associated with my Apple Pay. So I had to like go through this whole process of getting it pulled. It was really, really annoying. Well, that'll never happen with Metro by T-Mobile because you don't take yada yada in life. And you're not going to take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada, helping you stay ahead without compromising on things you love the most. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Here's where it gets crazy. See how may I hear you? Hi, um, I'd like to reserve a table for Wednesday the 7th. For seven people? Um, it's for four people. Four people when... Um, Today, next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Oh, actually, we leave here for like opera, like uh, five people. For few, four people, you can come. How long is the wait usually to uh, be seated? For when tomorrow or weekday or? For next Wednesday, uh, the seventh. Oh no, it's not too busy. You 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 can come for four people, okay? Oh, I gotcha. Thanks. Yep. Bye bye. But Ben, that, did, that, did, that didn't sound like anything at all. That was just a conversation between a young man and the proprietor of a, of a Chinese restaurant. Right. And who was – who is – whoever has a great time making restaurant reservations? No. You know? No, because I mean, we have open table for that. Am I right, Ben? Right. I, like many people in our generation, hate talking on the phone. It's true. Um, there's even a term for that, I think. What is it? Telephonophobia? Yes, that's, yeah. That's a good one. But no. I found, uh, yeah, when I found that one, I was like, how can you make a, can you just make anything a phobia? And I think you can. I think it's very American English now. I have microphonophobia, which is weird considering that I sit in front of one all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm, I'm in utter terror. But no, I, I was being coy. That clip was not between two humans. Mm-hmm. I think you can probably guess which side of the conversation was the non-human. Yep, yep. Because if you listen back to it, I think you'll notice a couple of tells. Um, in that there was a few 
there were a few kind of wrenches thrown into that that exchange where the the person was trying to call to make a reservation and there was some confusion from the person on the other end about how many about what day they wanted the reservation to be how many people were in the party right and it ultimately ended up with well you don't really need a reservation so the person on the other end of the phone was not equipped. It was not something they would typically do. Reservations seemed like not really a thing at this restaurant. And so the the, the caller mm. kind of repeated himself a couple of times. Specific things, like the specific time and day. Mm-hmm. And then there was a momentary pause when they said, we, we only do reservations for groups of five yep. or more. And I was, ah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Which still sounded very human. It did. It was not, though. It was a conversation between an unsuspecting restaurant employee, as you mentioned, and a computer program. This is an example of Google's duplex system, a personal assistant designed to make users' lives easier by handling standard phone calls. So like doctor's appointments, reservations, and so on. Uh, breaking up with a loved one uh, without troubling you or possibly even letting the person on the other end of the phone know that it's not actually you making the call. Yeah, and we get into all kinds of ethical quandaries with this that we'll get into. First first and foremost, though, I think it's interesting that the idea it, – it's, it's inherently tricksy, the whole, the whole affair, right? Yeah. The idea is to – not inconvenience either party, but you are you are genuinely kind of tricking someone into believing they're talking to a person. Yes, and you're giving up a lot of stuff. So at first, this seems amazing because like we established earlier, telephonophobia, in addition to being really fun to say, is a, is a genuine thing. And I would argue increasingly people are resorting to text. Well, I mean, how often do you talk on the phone if you're not talking to like your mom or dad like mm-hmm. on a pre-appointed time? I, I mean, if I'm doing interviews for a podcast, well, that's true. But that's, that's a very it. that's a very specific uh, task. Not you know? for fun. Never for fun. Mm-hmm. And unless I just feel like I could suss something out a lot quicker on the phone, real quick, than I could usually for business, though. Usually yeah. for work stuff, because sometimes or if conference calls, the dreaded conference call. That's a thing also that still, works. That's the thing that still happens. Yeah. But yeah, for fun, not very often. Um, you know, but for other people in the mix, there's totally a dark side to this idea of this super convenient, amazing idea of my phone being able to make calls for me and set up my, you know, my waxing appointment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because the implications are, are incredibly far reaching, aren't they, Ben? Yeah, they are, Noel. It's not just a it's not just an automated phone line saying Press one if you'd like to make a payment. Press two if you'd like to hear a mailing address. It's not just impersonating a generic human. Now it's a program capable of impersonating specific humans, namely you, capital Y O U, specifically you listening to this. And it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of opponents already. Now we're not saying that it 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 mimics your voice. That's not what this is is implying. Not yet. Not yet. But the idea is that it is it has access to all your information. Right. It has access to your date books and your phone numbers and and knows everything about you because it's tied into this little thing you carry around with you that is basically your life in a wallet form, you know? More specifically with Google, uh this this initial fear increases or the potential for misuse increases. This is a journalist who wrote an excellent article and her name's Alex Kranz. To her, the dangers are threefold. First, 
similar to what, what you're proposing, Noel, this is a program from Google, from Alphabet. And Google already knows a ton of personal information about you, whether or not you use an Android phone. This means that Duplex doesn't just know what time you want to meet your Tinder date at that tapas place. It also potentially knows every other single thing Google knows about your life. And Google is so widespread that you do not have to have a Google account for this to touch you. Second, a criminal, a government, a stalker, a prankster, some internet troll could potentially cheat Duplex out of giving up your information in a phone call. Imagine Duplex somehow being fooled into thinking it's calling a restaurant to make a delivery order, and then boom, somebody has your credit card information, expiration date, and security code. There was actually a really great – a whole bunch of great comments in the, in the comment section on this Gizmodo article by Alex Kranz. And one of them was the idea of like how this technology could be used by oh, – this term I love, bad actors. You know? Right. So for example, like what if you had a pizza place that wanted to use this kind of technology to uh, flood a rival pizza company with fake calls – and keep their phones tied up and, and I don't know. That was a particular one and sort of a far-fetched one. But the idea, the implications being that you could use this for scamming. You Easily. Know, big time, especially with older folks that maybe aren't going to key in to the fact that this is not a real person and you could possibly uh, automate and scale mm-hmm. scamming in a way that would far surpass the way it's done now because even the least tech-savvy people can tell that you're hearing a – automated voice, you know, spamming you to try to, you know, sign up for a cruise or something like that. Absolutely. And and to follow up on Kranz's, because you said it was threefold. So to follow up on the third thing, which I found the perhaps the most disturbing here. No, forget perhaps. It is the most disturbing thing. A person could hijack your duplex account and essentially function as you until such a point as they're caught. So imagine learning your credit and savings have been wiped out because your duplex called in a series of untraceable transfers to some Caribbean island, some offshore account. There's nothing that anyone could do because legally that thing would be functioning as you. Kranz and other critics of this technology are also concerned that at the initial presentation – Google billed this as another neato feature and they didn't say anything about privacy or concerns. It was yeah. very much, look what we can do, mm-hmm. not, hey, should we? Just like, uh. it's like It's like that line from Jurassic Park. Your, your, your scientists were spending so much time thinking whether they could, they never thought if they should. And crime uh, – Finds a way. It does. No, <laughs> it, it does. But but uh, you know, and, and you may think this is alarmist, but it's just like we're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from this stuff. And obviously, this technology is not ready for market. No, yet. no, no one's saying that. This is just kind of like a neato party trick they did at their I/O developers conference. But yeah, you're right because if 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 it's literally the the voice inside your phone. Mm-hmm. Then it's going to have access to all the data that's in your phone, and depending on how careful you are with this stuff, it could have every bit of identifying information that a human banker would ask you to right. give to confirm this crazy wire transfer that you want to do. What do they ask you for, Ben? 
They ask you for like the last four digits of your social security number, your mailing address, mm-hmm. your name, maybe your mother's maiden name or some secret word. Some but security question. going to be on your phone in some way, shape or form, likely. And many people email themselves those answers so that when they're online, they can mm-hmm. check back, including passwords. So it's a very important point to make that it has this duplex stuff has not been assigned any kind of rollout date. People are still speculating just how close or how far Google is from making this technology viable outside of testing situations and later available to the public. But the problem is this is not the only game in town. Sure, audio impersonation is spooky, but what about video? Do you remember back during the hunt for Osama bin Laden where various people were arguing that the bin Laden and propaganda videos wasn't the real guy but someone else impersonating him or something like that. Sure, or like a Snapchat filter. Right, yeah. I'm just kidding. But I'm not because all of the crazy tech – it blows my mind how much research and development they put into those Snapchat filters. Oh, yeah. And the more you see them, the more realistic they get and the more I could see them turning into some pretty nefarious ways of mapping people's faces and you know making you look like someone else entirely and making it not just a silly mustache Mm -hmm. but a totally believable dog. Yeah, and we've seen – look, visual manipulation is a tale as old as journalism. We've seen doctored photos aplenty purporting to be evidence of UFOs, giant skeletons, ghosts. And we as a species have known for a long time that photos can be faked. Someone with a handy knack for Photoshop, Paul can really work wonders. And nowadays, we've gone beyond the touch-ups of still images. Yeah, have you seen that doctored stuff they don't want you to know um, logo? Mm. There's some something fishy going on with that hand. Suspicious indeed. But again, no spoilers, right? <laughs> so uh, if you're wondering, fans of Westworld, yes, that maze is for you. As The Verge reported in July of last year, 2017, we're recording this 2018 July, researchers at the University of Washington invented a tool that takes audio files, converts them to realistic mouth movements, and then graphs those onto existing video. The end result of this is someone saying something or appearing to say something that they never actually said. And the scary part is it's really convincing. It's not like meme-level GIF funny. A lot of their earlier examples used footage of uh, former President Barack Obama. Did you see this stuff? Well, dude, there – I mean, and I know I keep harping on this, but there was a Barack Obama Snapchat filter and it it does have that uncanny valley look. But first of all, problematic you know, for a lot of reasons sure. to, to, to put on the, the visage of – Someone that's a different race than you and play a character and, you know, on oh, Snapchat. Oh, because Snapchat users were using it. So that's what I'm saying. It was literally a Snapchat film. There's also another one that was a Bob Marley, you know, with like – but but it's pretty damn realistic other than – there's things they probably did on purpose to make it less realistic. But that kind of mapping quality that you're talking yeah. about, the implications there are, are nutty. Yeah, and luckily for everybody who just got spooked out, we have some good – Good news here. First, they didn't just choose Barack Obama because they had some sort of ideological thing or they were like, we like this guy or we hate this guy or anything. They did it because a high-profile individual like a celebrity or a president will have a ton more high-quality video and audio footage to pull from. And also, this is a, this thing takes a, – a, it's a huge attrition process. They had to have at least 17 hours of footage just to get started. And they say – So is this another neural yeah. net kind of learning thing? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Deep yeah. learning mm-hmm. stuff. So this is a problem. 
They say that their goals are wholly good-hearted. I've got a quote here. The team behind the work say they hope it could be used to improve video chat tools like Skype. Users could collect footage of themselves speaking, use, uh, use it to train the software, and then when they need to talk to someone, video on their side would be generated automatically just using their voice. This would help in situations where someone's internet is shaky or if they're trying to save mobile data. But that's what Google's saying about Duplex. It's just a nifty little handy-dandy tool to help you book your hair appointment so you don't have to talk to people on the phone. They never talk about the – yeah, and no. this, yeah, exactly. And this, look, we can't, we can't ascribe motive. We can't say these people are lying to you, but we can say that this sort of technology is a Pandora's jar. And once that lid is unscrewed, there's no, there is absolutely no realistic way to prevent both the spread of these fake segments, yeah. and the spread of things being accused unjustly of fake segments. This, this poses some inherent dangers for journalism. We already see how easily a completely fake story can proliferate on Facebook. A bot-generated story yeah. at times, like yeah. literally an AI-generated uh, Twitter account, for example, that mm-hmm. can mimic the style of mm-hmm. someone of a particular ideology or whatever. Um, th- here's another aspect of it. There's an article from theinformation.com. Google's controversial voice assistant could talk its way into call centers. Because like we're saying earlier, uh, if you if you get an automated voice on the phone, you know it's not going to be actually very helpful at all. Mm-hmm. You're probably just going to blast past it. And they know that. And there are a lot of people that have their jobs being that person that it gets passed off to. Mm-hmm. So if there were a more uh, successful voice recognition and communication tool like this, it could put a lot of people out of jobs. That's a very good point. It could get us closer to not the post-work economy but the post-worker economy. And up to now, we've talked about these two forms of impersonation as discrete and different things, right? Audio on one side, video on another. But what if they become combined? What if a digital impersonation of a human being – even you, Noel, or even you, Paul, or even me, could exist online with no one but you and the people you meet in person knowing the difference. I mean, let's think about it. It would sound like us. It would look like us. And if it pulled from our online data footprint, it would also know a lot of stuff about us, including the relationships we already have with other people and how we interact with them. So it's possible, for instance, that a fake version of Matt Frederick writes uh, to us from Massachusetts, a little bit of foreshadowing there, and responds to the three of us the way that the real Matt would and we wouldn't know the difference. We'd be sending weird memes and thumbs up and doing our inside jokes and it would already know all of those. Well, and let's be honest. I mean, a lot of times text conversation and email conversations are already kind of in shorthand mm-hmm. or in some kind of a little bit more terse, not mean, but just kind of like we're trying to get it done. That's how we depend on that method of communication over talking because it's a lot more boom, 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 let's get it done and move on. I would think it would be easy-ish for an AI to mimic those kinds of little quick exchanges and not raise a red flag for you or I. That's a great point because even if they get something wrong, we would just think, oh, Matt must be in a hurry. Typo or, you know, Mm -hmm. fat finger, whatever. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, or. Autocorrect. Autocorrect, exactly. <laughs> like I've, I've, I've sent texts and like seen how mangled they were but be like, oh, he'll know what I mean. Yeah. And just like let it, let it ride. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because again, it goes to time. No, it would be alarmist for us to say this would plausibly happen to the average person in the near future. But for a high value target like a politician, a celebrity, a controversial business person and so on, it's completely within the realm of possibility. And speaking of alarmist, let's open wide the doors of science fiction and do a bit of speculation here. Completely unfounded. Imagine a world where the only communication you can trust becomes face-to-face in person. Imagine a world where you are accused of a crime you didn't commit, but you don't have a rock-solid alibi of your activities at the time of the alleged crime, and surprise, surprise, they have you on camera committing it and then confessing to it, and you cannot prove it is not you. Would this mean that eventually video evidence becomes inadmissible in court? Does this technology pose an existential threat to the fabric of digital reality? Is it really us talking to you right now? Yeah, man. I, I don't even know anymore. I don't know. And and to, to answer your hypothetical question earlier, yes, I think this is absolutely a threat. And we rely on things like video evidence, but I could see far enough removed from this particular technological time and place. Mm-hmm. That could be something that is just a thing of the past, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can, yeah. can, can you picture it? Like, I'm trying to think of an, of, a, of an analog of something that used to be infallible and now is like completely up for grabs. Like, I don't know. Polygraphs. Yeah, polygraphs. Exactly. Great example. Or I don't know. This is a little bit more of an ephemeral example, but even something like the press or like the news, you know, yeah. now you know, you used to, to be able to depend on some level of rigor and truth in any kind of news reporting you'd mm-hmm. see. And now, as you say, because of the Internet, we can see stuff that's completely – generated by artificial intelligence that tricks people all the time into believing that it's, you know, God's truth. And it's insane. So I wonder, you know, I I have questions for you too, Noel. I don't want to put you on the spot, but this is this is one of the only conversations we can know is actually happening between us, right? I mean, we are sitting here looking at each other in the eyes. We are (laughs) definitely both humans because as far as I know, we don't have uh, human stand-ins that are believable enough to to trick either one of us. It's like in Terminator, the first ones, you could tell the difference, right? So so what – do you have any thoughts on the likelihood of this kind of technology progressing or being used to disrupt the spread of reliable information? Do you think it's a definite? Do you think it might happen? Do you think it's – a little bit sensationalistic. What do you think? I, I think it absolutely could happen. I think it's another one of those things that's uh, kind of um, dangled out there like a piece of bait on a fishing hook uh, for the American consumer to bite onto and be, oh, this will change my life for the better. This will make it so easy for me to not have to make hair appointments or schedule oil changes or what have you. Oh, yeah. And then you – you know, once the buy-in happens, then it start, then it opens that Pandora's jar that you mm-hmm. keep talking about. So, yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. The more access we give our devices and the more centralized our information is mm-hmm. – and I guess by centralized, I just mean within a, a particular service where it has access to all of it. Because um, that's, that's, that's what it takes, right? Mm-hmm. Why does Siri suck? Okay, let's just, I just want to get into this because sure, I want to sure. rag on Apple for a minute. Yeah. Siri is not a good personal assistant because it doesn't learn. It doesn't 
keep track of what you say. It's mm-hmm. starting from scratch every time you ask it a question, right? This is Siri, Apple's personal assistant, which is one of the first ones to hit the market, but fizzled ridiculously because of Google's um, and Amazon's Alexa and stuff because those actually learn and are connected to the internet and learn your vocal patterns and learn your preferences mm-hmm. and have access to that bigger network, whereas Siri is just kind of dumb. It doesn't really do that. It can tell you stuff about Apple. It can tell you a lot of stuff about the history of the company, and it can do Google searches for you. But if you said, hey, Siri, what time is this movie? It'll mm-hmm. probably give you some tangentially related uh, answers, but not the exact answer you want. Time was invented shortly after mm-hmm. the Big Bang. Yeah, right. he's like, Siri, tell me a joke. That's always fun. But no, but Google mm-hmm. Assistants uh, will do that because it learns your habits and figures out – what kinds of questions you're asking. So that's what I'm saying. When we start mm-hmm. getting into that, where we're tapped into this larger network, mm-hmm. it does seem like a slippery slope. But yet people, even the most paranoid of my friends, mm-hmm. some of them are all about these home assistants. And it's this, thing, this conversation we always have where it's like, I'll give it up if I can tell a little box to turn on my lights for me. Ah, uh, yeah. I, uh, well, I was given one of those things and I plug it in when I'm cooking and unplug it afterwards. So it probably thinks that I am always cooking or just don't have power at my house, mm-hmm. which I'm fine with. But we want to hear from you. Assuming, again, to the earlier question, is it really us talking to you now? What would you like to tell us are the robot versions of us impersonating the biological versions of us? Do you have a home assistant? Do you uh, use this facial recognition software that is so often marketed as a free uh, recreational pursuit? Do you believe that the future will be fraught with um, things that make us question digital reality. Is there a way to combat it? Should there be? Uh, You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. (laughs) You can find some version of us. I feel like now we have to say you can find some version of us on there. Uh, You can also, of course, visit our one of our favorite places on the Internet, our Facebook page, Here's Where It Gets Crazy, where you can see Matt, Noel, and I. um, Well, what do we do there? Where? On the internet? Here's where it gets crazy. Oh, all kinds of stuff. We (laughs) we lurk sometimes. Sometimes we respond and hop around in the threads and post our own little gifs and memes. And we have a good time in there. It's a lot of fun. And if none of those are quite the badger for your bag, you are in luck. You can contact us directly. We have an email address. It is conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. Five to six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. 